You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Harvey Picard is the creator of the graphic novel autobiography American Splendor. His latest works are Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story, illustrated by Gary Dumm, and The Quitter, illustrated by Dean Haspiel. Welcome to the program, Harvey. Thank you. Harvey, you started out as a writer writing reviews of jazz music. Tell us a little bit about writing reviews and, and how you came into that and how that helped you to learn to write fiction. Actually, I should point out I don't write fiction. This stuff is either autobiographical or, in the case of Michael Malice, biographical. But it's not fiction. Okay. Although uh, fiction writers have influenced me mainly. The way I got into doing the jazz uh, criticism was I was a big jazz fan and a collector back in the late 50s. And I used to correspond with a guy who was pretty active as a critic and uh, used to write a lot of liner notes guy named Ira Gittler. When I was around 18, I one time I hitchhiked up to New York, partly f- to meet him, you know. And he encouraged me. He said, there's this new magazine out, the Jazz Review. You should uh, send them some of your stuff they're looking for. And I says, ah, oh, no, I'm not a professional. You know, those guys don't give a damn about me. I, I did anyway, and it got accepted. I just started working from there, and uh, I started, I develop my values, you know, how I look at or l- listen to records, you know, and l- listen for certain things, uh, listen for the harmonic, uh, melodic, and rhythmic characteristics of the music, listen for the, you know, the tone color and uh, how original the artist was or how influential he was, a lot of th- things like that to take into consideration Un- until I had pretty much b- built up a a kind of, uh, you know, stock of uh, of um, of values, you know, and that's uh, and and I reviewed my uh, reviewed records as a re- you know like a you know with that system, and it's also that that system sort of is like led led me to the values I have as a writer of uh, comic books. I mean, I I try to do stuff that's original innovative. Tell us a little bit about this kind of lexicon of reviewing that you developed. It it sounds like you, you had kind of a a, a structure, a, a, yeah. a, set, a set of equations, in a sense, to, to now, describe yeah, the music. Not, it's not exactly equations, but there were certain things that I figured, you know, that I should look for in the, you know, in the music. Well, what did uh, you look for? What, what well, records like, inspired you? Well, there were a million records that inspired me, but what I was looking for was I was, you know, first of all, when you review something, you should describe it and describe it as accurately as possible. So I would look at the music from the stand, from different standpoints mm-hmm. that, when taken together, make up pretty much the totality of music. It was the, the, the uh, melodic, the harmonic, the rhythmic elements, the structure and, uh, you know, the tone colors. First of all, I would try and describe the music accurately, you know, taking into account these features. Then I would check out how how original the artist was, because originality and innovation is, is real important to me, you know, to do, do stuff to voc- broaden the vocabulary of your art form. That was a big, a big thing with me, trying to... I mean, I, I, I really used to celebrate artists whose work was fresh, who were adding something to the, to the vocabulary of the form. And, um, you, know, and I, you know, I retained some of those values. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to write about books or write books from a harmonic, rhythmic, and melodic standpoint. That's when you're talking about music. But the... But the the issue of originality and innovation still remains, and that's very important to me to uh, to be doing stuff that's that's uh, fresh and new, you know. 
and I tried in my comic books to deal well to you know both from a stylistic standpoint and from the standpoint of content I've tried to deal with uh things that comic books have not dealt with much if at all before like you know like the standard comic book stuff is like superhero stuff you know and i i happen to believe that you can do anything in comics and i think it's ridiculous that comics have been confined pretty much to doing superhero stuff when they could be doing anything i mean i'm not saying ban superhero stuff but i'm saying that um uh you know you can do all sorts of things you know along with superhero stuff superhero stuff is you know just should be just a, a kind of a, a relatively small component of of what I would like to see comics become. So I started writing, uh, and I, I decided that I would like to write autobiographically. So a lot of my awful lot of my work is autobiographical. Most of it is, and uh, I you know I asked myself, well, what what do I you know know, you know what can I write about that I'm knowledgeable about and what I knew was just everyday life. I, I had a job as a file clerk at the VA hospital, you know, for years, for decades. Um, and, uh, but I thought that the job, there were a lot of stresses and strains connected with the job and stuff. And, and I, I thought maybe I feel as upset about stuff as Condoleezza Rice does, you know, who knows? I just assumed that just because a guy, for example, is is worried about five hundred dollars rather than five dollars. A rich man is worried about five hundred thousand. A poor man's worried about five. But if it's if it's the last money they have, they're both gonna feel pretty bad about it. So, and I I tried to write stuff that people could identify with, talk about situations, no matter how humble or insignificant they may seem, like you know losing your keys or something like that, or not being able to start your car on a cold winter morning, something like that. That's So that's sort of like some of the things that I aim for when I started doing comics. This is an interesting point that you make about writing about what you know, because you started out writing reviews about jazz, which was what you knew. And in a sense, when you started writing your autobiographical fiction, it was you were reviewing your life. Yeah, autobiographical nonfiction. Not a biographical nonfiction. Yes, I'm going to remember that soon Soon enough. Tell us a little bit about some of your fictional influences. You said that you, you're influenced by fiction writers. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was influenced, uh, you know, by a, a number of them. I, I've done a lot of reading of fiction. Some of the people that influenced me, well, I was influenced by James Joyce, you know, like I do a lot of... Inter interior monologues, and uh, I was influenced by a, a guy named uh, George Ade, who I think was one of the top American realist writers around the turn of the century, like in a class with Theodore Dreiser and Frank Norris and Stephen Crane, except that um, he got real successful real soon, and he, he did some good stuff over about a 10-year period you know, he his stuff kind of got repetitive. But when he was on, and, and he lived a long time and people forgot about him. That's what happened to him. But this guy would was a newspaper reporter and he would write about thinly disguised accounts of stuff he saw in the streets every day. He was one of the first guys, one of the first white writers to, you know, write seriously about a, a black man's life uh, in, in, a, in a book called Pink Marsh. And he wrote about a, a working class white kid's uh, life in uh, a, a book called Artie. They're, these are like novellas. Now, what were you doing when you encountered this writing? Where were you in your life? Well, I was. I first got into George Ade. I was turned on to him by a guy who, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He used to be a very highly regarded uh, comedian by the name of Gene Shepard. I got into George Ade around 1960 when, when Shepard started writing about him. Now, what was happening in your life at that time? What were you doing? Well, I was, I was working a series, you know, I was just involved in working a series of flunky jobs until I got my job 
with the federal government. Well, my job at the federal government was kind of a flunky job too, but you know, it had good fringe benefits and stuff. And it was know. steady and reliable. Yeah, yeah. I, I it was. It suited me just for, just fine. You know, I was happy with it. Tell us a little bit about explaining why you like something in a review, and why something is a good work in a review is a means of understanding how to create a good work yourself, isn't it? Do, do the reviews help you, your understanding of music help you to get at your own life better? Well, I mean, in the sense that mu- my understanding of music involves my understanding in the larger thing, which is art, yeah, I guess so, sure. And again, I come back to the, the issue of originality. The really great artists, I think, in just about every form, have been innovators, not guys who copied other people. Within the past several years, I really badmouthed Wynton Marsalis's work because Wynton Marsalis, although he's an excellent technician, he just copies other people. He gets involved and infatuated with with one guy, and he'll do him for a while, and he'll do another guy. Like he was writing these compositions that were like Duke Ellington and. It went, early in his career, his playing was a lot like Miles Davis. He's gotten a tremendous amount of celebration, but he's never he's never been anything like original. I used to write these reviews, putting them down, and I think they probably upset some people because, you know, he's regarded as a, a kind of a, a god among some jazz uh, fans and, and uh, reviewers, and jazz's last chance to make it because jazz is in a lot of trouble right now. But um, well, why would you say jazz is in a lot of trouble right now? Because, first of all, their share of record sales, as broken down by genre, it's like they only have like two percent of record, two percent share, mm-hmm. and it's going downward. You know, and it has been going down steadily. Another thing is that see, jazz doesn't jazz doesn't have a, a much of an avant-garde anymore. In other words, there aren't people that are mainly concerned with adding. To the to the uh, to jazz's vocabulary, there the, there are some guys, and they're doing very creative work. Like I can mention a guy named Joe Maneri, for example. But but their work is so far out uh, that the average fan can't follow it. The rest of the jazz musicians just go around copying earlier musicians, and I don't think that's a healthy situation. If you're not getting anything new added to an art form, and most of the guys who are performing the art are just doing revival kind of work, reviving the swing era, reviving the bebop era, you know. That stuff's been done already. So you're looking for something that's entirely new and entirely innovative. Could it be that the new jazz just doesn't get identified as jazz? Well, that's a possibility, too, because in shedding some of its the characteristics that define jazz over a long period of time, and then these new guys came along and for example, their work didn't swing, and swing had always been considered an essential part of jazz. You know, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And and without without that, some people, although I think the music, you could point to the influences and, and see how it had gotten to a point where it didn't swing, and I don't think it has to swing to be jazz, but some people, they'd say that's classical music or something, improvised classical music. Modern classical. Marcellus is doing classical music these days, isn't he? Yeah, but I'm talking about avant-garde classical music. Jazz is like avant avant-garde jazz. Some people think is resembles avant-garde classical music, and it it could be that the the, the two avant-garde forms are are headed for a blending or something like that. They're 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 headed toward each other. Now you have more and more artists who are familiar with both idioms, and who take some stuff from both idioms and mix them. Uh, who would you cite in that in that realm? I'm curious. Okay, um, I told you Maneri, um, mm-hmm. who's a classical composer. Do you know? Have you ever heard of John Zorn? Oh yeah, John Zorn's great. Well, John Zorn, John Zorn, you know, is strongly influenced by classical music, and has written some pieces that are more classical than than they are jazz. A lot of the people that Zorn associates with or has associated with in the past, like, for instance, a guy named Dave Douglas, who was a trumpet player with Zorn in a band called Masada. Dave has done some uh, 
some classically influenced stuff. These guys are, are they, however, except Zorn does have a, a kind of a following, mm-hmm. and, and he deserves it. But I think a lot of people just like him because they think he's far out than, than, than really understand what, you know, what he's doing, where he came from. And how he relates to the jazz canon itself. Right. So tell us a little bit. Let's ratchet back to you. You're working on one of your drudgery jobs, and you decide to start writing. You've been writing reviews, and you decide to start writing biography. Why did you choose to write comics, as write your biography as comics? Okay, uh, my autobiography. Autobi- autobiography. Yeah, why did I uh, start to do that? Because I saw that, that comics were a very underutilized medium. When I was a little kid, I used to read comic books. You know, I used to read tons of them. Like when I was in elementary school, from the age of about six to the age of about 11. And I'd save them and everything, you know, I was obsessive compulsive. However, as I got older, I got less and less interested in them, and they became less and less entertaining to me because they were formulaic. And the formula didn't have anything to do with any of your actual experience. Exactly. It's like right triumphs over evil and stuff like that, and the end has got to show that and things like that. So I, I, I was so dissatisfied with, with so many comic books after, after a point that I just stopped buying them and reading them. And I, when I was a little kid, I mean, I, I couldn't articulate this, but when I was like around 11 years old or something, I thought that comics had something intrinsically wrong with them, that there was something that, that kept... Uh, substantive works from being written and, and drawn in the comic style. Mm-hmm. Something that was just part of the nature of the art form itself. It couldn't yeah. couldn't do anything good because it was a comic. Yeah, right. It it just it just all oh, they're just you know like people say today that they want to put something down you know like a simple minded or something they say well it's just like a comic book or something like that. In 1963, Robert Crumb. Do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. Robert Crumb moved from Philadelphia to Cleveland, about a block and a half away from where I lived. And we were both jazz fans at that time and record collectors. And I got to know him. And I looked at his, you know, cartoon work. Mm -hmm. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I thought, my God, I've been wrong about comics. You know, you can do any kind of story you want in comics. You know, you can use any word in the dictionary in comics. You know, you can use a whole wide variety of illustration styles, but people just haven't done it. For some reason, comic books have just been mired in this superhero stuff for so long, and everybody's afraid to do anything else. Like comics, they think comics can't do anything else. Well, I was sure that comics could do anything else. It just stood to reason that if you've got access to all the words that Shakespeare had, you ought to be able to write a good story in, in comics. And I figured that this was innovative, you know, to start dealing with material that comics haven't dealt with much, or even like literature, like this quotidian stuff that I'm talking about. It's not dealt with much in, in, in novels either, you know. Now, this is something you really like. This is a word you really like, quotidian. Yeah, right. And, and day, you know, day by day. Day by day. Life. Life. Yeah. I can say that instead of quotidian if you'd rather. No, no, no. I, it, it's an interesting word, and it crops up a lot in your work, and I, I wanted to, yeah. to talk a little bit about it. So you were corresponding with Crumb. Talking well, to I was, him. I was talking to him, yeah. Hanging out with Crumb. Yeah, right. And, and how did you start actually writing? Did you... Well, actually, it took me a, a pretty long time to get into the writing aspect of it because I I wasn't an illustrator, so I could I needed to, cl- to collaborate with a, an illustrator to get the work done. And I didn't know who to ask. I didn't have any contacts in that field. And, you know, I, I also didn't know how my work would be received. My stories would be received by them, and I was you know, afraid of rejection. But finally, in 1972, Crumb was you know, visiting me. At that time, he moved out to California. And um, he came 
he came over to my house, and uh, I I just prepared a bunch of stories for him in the storyboard st uh, style, you know, using uh, stick figures and balloons and, and, you know, dividing the page up into panels. And I showed him the crumb, and I asked him, what did he think? Did he think this stuff was viable, would be viable in comics? And he said he, he liked this stuff, and not only that, but he would like to take some home and work, you know, and work on them, illustrate them. So that was that was a tremendous break for me. When he did that, I mean, it was it was like I, I skipped over a lot of people that were, you know, just starting out because here I was a, already I was associated with one of the greatest, you know, cartoonists in the world. That that was that, your start. That was my start, meteoric beginning. So tell us a little bit about this this process of writing for you. Do you actually write out? Do you draw out a page and create the panels? Right. Or, so you so you don't do any like sit down at a typewriter and type no, out dialogue. No, uh, yeah, I don't do uh, scripts like common mo movie scripts or theater scripts. I break down the p the page into into panels. I have my characters in there, except I I just make them stick figures, and I put them I put thought balloons in with them and and and. Uh, word balloons, and I write captions, and I also write instructions to the artist about uh, how, in general, I, I think the scene that I'm writing about, you know, looks. I describe maybe the principal characters in it, and if there's a room, you know, what how it's furnished, something like that. I mean, I don't get extremely specific like some guys do. Like Alan Moore is a guy. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, yes. But Alan Moore, if you look at some of his scripts, and I like Alan's work, but if you look at some of his scripts, it's like he prescribes everything for the artist, including the colors. They're very, very detailed. You have a I'm, more jazz feel with your Well, I, I like to I like to leave it a little bit open. And maybe I don't even see it as completed as Alan Moore does. I don't know. I mean, Alan Moore's also an illustrator. And Harvey Kurtzman, who used to also write very detailed scripts, you know, the guy who created Mad Magazine, he was also an illustrator. So those guys, they they do everything but, like, the final draft of the work. They'll do all kinds of roughs and, and things like that. Tell me, do you, how do you revise? And, and tell me a little bit about writing dialogue in thought balloons. That must be a really interesting process. Writing dialogue what? In thought balloons. Oh. Or, or in balloons, word balloons. No, I mean, I I grew up, you know, reading that kind of material, and it never, I don't know, you're the first guy that's actually asked me that, you know, in in all the years I've been doing this stuff. I It never, a guy says something, so you put it, you know, you put it over his head, what he says, and then you stick a, stick it in a bubble. And make a line going down to him. That's that's what it amounts to. And I think, given a little practice, many many people can probably write successful thought or, or word balloons. Like if there were thought balloons, they would have bubbles going up from the guy's head to the to the uh, to the um, to the balloon. It's a pretty easy technique to use. And uh, well, now, you, since a lot of your stuff is biographical, it's right there. You're reporting what you've seen. When you're sitting around and taking stuff in, you're recording stuff to be used later, right? In, in your, as a, yeah. Do you have a photographic memory? I have a real good memory, actually. And I also... Do you take notes when you hear some particular... Sometimes I do, yeah. Sometimes I take notes. Sometimes I'll just go home and write the story complete as I saw it maybe a couple hours previous because there's some nuances there that I'm afraid I might forget if I wait you know a day before I write it so uh, I do that but yeah yeah I, 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 I take notes and I do I write stories very soon after I've had the experience you started out self-publishing is right. this correct yeah right Tell us a little bit about the perils of self-publishing, how you felt, because you were a guy who had been, after all, reviewing professionally published music. Yeah. So now you're putting your own work out to be reviewed. And tell us a little bit about your experience doing that, in, in, just in terms of the, the 
nuts and bolts. I mean, did you go out and photocopy stuff or, or mimeograph, or how well, did you do that in the, in the beginning? Yeah, well, I would give the artists the scripts, and then they would draw them, you know, on these large sheets of uh, paper or cardboard. They would create the story. They would pencil mm -hmm. it, and they would ink it, and they would letter it. And everything like that. So that did you, you know, have much of a chance to revise this stuff? I mean, when you were doing your dialogue, writing your your thought balloons, did it? Yeah, did because you? I I mean I I the, the a lot of the guys I worked with lived close to me, and I could just go over and see how things were progressing. So it's an but, over the shoulder revision process. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Must it, did you ever have like conversations with them? Like, I I don't want to do no. Well, I really, I really didn't complain too much. For one thing, I thought that, I mean, I was paying them so little money that I figured it'd have to be really something pretty terrible for me to start complaining about it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the people I worked with, frankly, weren't that talented. It was just I worked with whoever I could work with. I wanted to work with real good people, but if they weren't available, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather have my stuff drawn by a merely competent artist than not have it done at all. So how so, did you get your stuff published? I well, okay, the process was this: we, you know, I would collect all the, uh, you know, the artwork, the original artwork, and I would take them down to a place that shot negatives, and they would they would shoot the you know the negatives of these uh, of of the of the pages that I wanted to put in the comic book, including the cover, and. Um, Oh my God! That means that you must have somewhere these originals piles. No, no, no! Of they, incredible no, originals. No, they go back to the no. That by that time it was it was already the custom to give the the artist back his original stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would I would have uh, then I would I would I would take these down and get them photographed, and then the guy would give the guy who photographed them would give me like. Uh, two sets to take. You know, one was the cover, which was color, and I would take that to one printer who, you know, specialized in, in printing color stuff, and the other was black and white. And I so I'd have the covers done by one company and the inside done by another. And then they would ship them to a bindery that is a place that, you know, would take the inside of the book, st stick it, in, inside of the uh, cover, staple it together, staple them together, and trim the, you know, trim the book to get your finished product. I mm. looked around Cleveland, which is not exactly a, a major publishing center, and that was the best I could do. And as far as apparels, I mean, I lost a lot of money, but I figured, I, but I quit collecting records, so, you know, I, I lost about as much as I spent on records, so I, I figured it was worth it. Um, so, to how big was your first publication? I mean, how many I, copies I did you always print? did. I always did ten thousand. Ten thousand. So yeah. you started big from the beginning. That's yeah, quite it's a fairly bit. big. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the cost per unit goes down when you you print more of them. How did you distribute it, and how did you get it reviewed and respected? Okay, there were um, as far as the district. There were at one time several distribution systems in place in this country that would that would distribute underground comics or alternative comics, whatever you want to call them, like uh, Last Gasp, Kitchen Sink were a couple of them, you know, Capital City. I would just send them a comic book and ask them if they'd be interested in buying some, and they would order some, you know. Okay, now about how did I get them reviewed? I didn't even... At that time, there was so little critical writing about comic books, uh, alternative comic books, that I didn't even try and get them reviewed. I, uh, but I was fortunate in that there were people, there were a few people that liked, that liked alternative comics and that did do some pioneering writing about them. And they only wrote about stuff they liked. And who so, is this? Oh, some of the guys' names? Yeah. I mean, well, it was Clay Clay Geardies was, was one of the guys. He put out a, a newsletter like every week or month or something like that. That uh he was he was he was maybe the f the first guy to, to get into that stuff. But the 
the thing was that these guys would just like write about stuff they liked. And if they didn't like it, they wouldn't pan it. They just wouldn't write about it. Mm-hmm. Unless it was maybe they would pan it if it was by some you know famous guy you know that everybody known about. So I got nothing but real good reviews for the for the first several years that my comic came out, and that I think helped me create a positive uh, atmosphere about him. People really liked him, and then comic other uh, comic book artists were you know saying that they liked his stuff, and Crumb endorsed my work and stuff. So it just it just slowly gradually grew to a point when how long before you broke even? Or making money on this? About 15 years. 15 years. And, and that was because I started going to comic conventions and selling them there. There you could take a, a comic book that cost you 40 cents to produce, and instead of selling it for a dollar to a wholesaler, you could sell it for like $2 or something like that to a retail customer. So I might made much bigger profit. Profit. So I used to go to a couple comic conventions uh, in the summer. So I got I I go to uh, the big one in Chicago, and there's a the biggest one was in San Diego. So you're essentially driving around with your work in your trunk for 15 years. Yeah, and that takes a lot of self confidence, doesn't it? Especially for somebody who who lives a, a quoted such a quotidian life and is writing about such a quotidian subject. Well, everybody, you know, I mean, maybe it did take a lot of self-confidence, but everybody that was putting out comic books, a lot of them were doing self-publishing. They were, you know, doing even stuff that was just Xeroxed and doing little small batches of it. And they used to come to these conventions too, and they would sell their stuff, even the the shyest among them. So... uh, and I, I, I had developed over the years some contacts with people in comics, so I wasn't exactly a complete stranger to these conventions when I, when I went to them. And the people that came over to my booth knew who I was, so I didn't have to give an, ex- an explanation about what I was trying to do. They already knew. So you were already known, and people were already seeking out your product. And yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that. When you're writing about everyday life, comics, which, as you pointed out, started out dealing entirely in the fantastic superheroes, space, monsters, all sorts of weird stuff, don't necessarily leap to mind as a method of discussing the quotidian everyday life. And so tell us a little bit about how you use, I think, and I've seen it in your work, you let the fantastic edge in a bit into the art to, to as a way to get at some of the well, emotions oh, well. of everyday life. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there are some people that have cartoony styles that work with me, and they're they're influenced very strongly by traditional cartoonists. Then on the other hand, I have some people that don't have any kind of comic book experience at all, or very little. They they're like I used to work with these art students who were into drawing a lot and illustration and stuff like that, but not cartoons. So I, I, I had a, a variety of, of work done for me, illustration work done for me. As a writer, when you're writing for comics, you have to develop a, a different prose style than you do, say, when you're writing for reviews. It's a lot leaner. It, tell us a little bit about honing your prose for the comics. Well, I, I like the fact that comics <clears throat> are kind of an economical way to tell a story. Although my stuff can get kind of wordy because, I mean, before I was a comic writer, I was a prose writer, and I was, I was used to writing a lot. But, you know, over the years, like, learned how to time uh, comic book stories, you know, like by putting in maybe just a few words in one panel and a whole lot in the next one or something, you know, like setting the reader up, or even by non-dialogue, panels where there's no no words in the panel at all and so that that sort of creates a kind of a pause it's like in music it would be the equivalent of a rest and and then you know and then i you know maybe the weight of prose versus the weight of the art on the page they create a different density yeah and there's a sense of balance too in your work that the 
that visually and textually it flows that the reader is just moved through the panels. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about lettering. One of the things I noticed in the ego and hubris was you have a lot of words in boldface. Is this you doing this? Is this the letter, the uh, no, artist? No, mostly, mostly. I, I, I don't really put, uh, I don't have real strong f- feelings about putting stuff in boldface or not putting stuff in boldface. So usually whoever letters the thing, I, I let them do like, you know, as long as they don't get absurd about it, I let them do whatever they feel like doing. If you use boldface too much, you tend to over-dramatize things. We're in a new world as far as biography and autobiography go these days. We, with the internet, there's people out there right now who are creating an incredibly detailed timeline of your life, maybe more detailed than even you have. And they're ready to publish at the drop, they're able to publish at the drop of a pin any deviation from reality that you, that happens in your comics. Yeah. How do you feel about how real you have to be? And does the comic medium allow you a little more wiggle room than, say, a straightforward memoir? I don't think it would make any difference. I mean, if if I were using, if I were writing a main, a, bi, a autobiographical prose piece about myself, and I thought that in in a few mostly i would try and be as accurate as i possibly could but in in there would be times like maybe when i would want to do something as simple as change a person's name so that they, they wouldn't get embarrassed or something like that and i don't have any problem doing that like my wife one time she i have a i had a foster kid and my wife hated her father when we went to do a story about them she, she disliked them so much that she changed his, she had a, his his person changed from the artist who was doing my work, who was a guy who was in his 60s and living in Missouri, to her father, so that people thought that her father was gainfully employed and not just this, you know, kind of bum. I mean, I occasionally do that. Uh, it was done in the movie. They did it with, without really telling me about it. And I kind of wished that, they hadn't done it, but it didn't, you know, matter that much. Um, How much do you respond to the demands of your fans? You must well, get I, a lot I, of mail, a lot of yeah, I correspondence. Get, I get a lot of correspondence, but mostly it's it's all you know positive stuff, and they don't tell me to do something different. They just they tell me how much they like what I'm doing. I do have to respond also though to editors. My comics for a real long time didn't sell well. And when they did start selling well, it took the impetus of a, well, it was a pretty popular movie to make them sell well and to bring them bring me to my, uh, the public's attention. This is so, the American Splendor movie? Yeah, right. Oh, okay. And editors have a lot of pressure on them, and publishers have a lot of pressure on them to make money. So... I, you know, I had been self-publishing, and you know, nobody was telling me anything about what to do. I just did what I felt like doing, mm-hmm. and that's uh, what got you the acclaim. Yeah, and I, and I still pretty much do because they they respect me and they think I know what I'm doing. But I, I'm I'm starting to run into problems. Like to give you an example, one I, I'm re, I'm reviving my American Splendor comics. You know the ones that you know that, that came out in comic book forms, not the so-called graphic novels. Mm-hmm. I'm reviving that series and writing new stories for it, mm-hmm. and I'm putting in the kind of story I used to put in my old American Splendor books. You know, mm-hmm. and um, some of these uh, some of these stories. Well, one of them in particular, I wrote a real long story about a guy who was a friend of mine, and he was he was featured. I was in the thing, but he was featured. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd done stuff like that before in my own comic books, and I never got any negative feedback about it. Mm-hmm. But I got a problem. You know, this guy from DC Comics said, no, we can't use this. It's a good story, 
but people want to know about you. You've got to be the major figure. And, you know, especially in a story like this, which is a pretty long story. Is this the Michael Malice story? No, no, no. This this is a, a short story that hasn't been published yet. Okay. <laughs> I hope I hope it gets published someday. I, I mean, I was counting on it going into the into the new American Splendor series, but these guys are telling me they don't want to put it in there because because I'm not in it enough. And this is not an uncommon problem when art and commerce meet, that the people who are writing the checks and receiving yeah. the checks are somewhat clueless as to the appeal of <laughs> of what they're selling. Yeah. Well, what I what I as a first step, the way I'm trying to get around it is I have more than one publisher. And rather than have a fit because they didn't want to print this one story, I'll take it to another publisher. And usually I can get it, you know, if I send it to about three or four publishers. One of them is going to. Yeah, one of them will take it. And so I'll get get the thing done. You know, I must admit, I don't don't particularly like editors telling me stuff like that, that I have to feature myself almost all the time and I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with writing about somebody else. Well, the idea that you, that brought you to the forefront is innovation. And in a sense, you're just trying to keep innovating. Well, yeah, I'm trying to do st- stuff that's different anyway. Right. One thing that's interesting to me is your relationship with celebrity. Tell us a little bit about how you feel as you become a celebrity, how you feel as you see yourself portrayed by celebrities, and this kind of conflict and contradiction in that you live in a very ordinary life and have enjoyed that ordinary life and, and have indeed done well for yourself by just talking about an ordinary life. Yeah. Now you find yourself outside of that. Well, it's not as much of a problem as you may think because I, I live a pretty insular life. You know, I, I just, I don't, I don't really go out much and I don't see a lot of different people. Now they're sending me out on this book tour but I don't, I don't particularly like to do this kind of thing, you know, go around and get interviewed and, and you know, travel to four different cities in four, in four days and have to put up with the hassle of flying on an airplane, which I really don't like. I mean, the red tape involved with it and the fact that the planes are, you know, sometimes late. And if they're late, it can have really some serious consequences, you know, it can screw up a few days. I don't really run across that many people who know who I am, or else I run across people who've known me all my life, and they all my life they've known I've done these comics, so they you know they don't treat me any differently. I didn't feel particularly weird about say Paul Giamatti playing me in the movie, because I had already been portrayed by a number of illustrators, and I had already had my stuff done, adapted for plays three times. So I'd seen myself played by actors, so it didn't. It didn't really faze me that much. One of the things that they they mentioned prominently on your book jackets is the Letterman deal. Yeah. I, I've never watched the show, so I don't know much about it. But tell me a little bit about how you got on there and why it's such a big deal. Okay. The way I got on the thing in the first place was Letterman has a, at one time, we're talking 1986, had a head writer who came from Cleveland. And although I didn't know him, he knew my work. And he really liked it, and he tried to get me on Letterman's show. But they said they needed a tape of me on TV, you know, to make sure I wouldn't, you know, go to go all the pieces. You know, they wanted to see that I at least had some kind of composure. So, I, you know, where was I going to go on, on TV? So I just figured this, this was never going to happen. But that year... I went to the San Diego Comic Convention, and they set up something to publicize their convention where I did go on TV. I was screwing around with this DJ who, or, or this uh, the master of ceremonies who used to be a DJ in Cleveland, and, you know, so I knew more about him than most people would that were in my position. And um, so we were clowning around, and we were pretty funny. And I sent, I got a copy of the tape, and I sent it to Letterman. And Letterman approved of it, and I went on his show. And the first couple of times I went on his show, I did like a parody of the Cleveland working man, the Cleveland working stiff, the the Rust Belt character, you know, mm-hmm. the you know the dummy. 
And it went over real well. But then I, you know, I didn't want to do that all the time. I wanted to do, I wanted to do comedy. But I, I didn't want to just be stereotyped. And I, I just asked Letterman about it, and he basically refused. I mean, he wouldn't give me a, no, you can't do this. But he'd, he'd you know, avoid the questions and stuff and sidestep them. And, and uh, meantime, as a result of being on his show, my comics were not selling more. I thought they would, but they weren't. And I was not getting much money. I was getting union minimum. So I figured, what am I doing on this show? I'm going up there. I'm doing a self-parody every every time I go up there, which I, I really don't want to do, which I'm tired of doing. And um, this show is really worthless to me. How can I make it worth something to me? And I thought, well, you know, I could create a, sort of a scandal or a, something like that. And, and so what did what you I, do? So what I did was, around the time I started going on Letterman's show, General Electric bought NBC, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was a conflict of interest there. That GE, you know, had had been a contributor of, I mean, had been a, a maker of parts for nuclear weapons and other, you know, military equipment. They had been convicted many, many times of breaking antitrust laws. I just felt that they shouldn't be trusted mm-hmm. to own. Uh, you know, a company that included NBC News, the public airwaves. Yeah, I thought that I thought that there was too much, too much trouble for them to defraud the public or or to you know give the public wrong information for their own profit. I I built up a case. You know, I went to the library and I did a, a lot of research on on GE and I came back to Letterman and I said, look, we're going to talk about GE tonight. You know, and how about its effect on NBC, its bad effect on the general public. If we, if you don't want to talk about it with me, then I'll just shout it over you, you know, and <laughs> I'll just create chaos. So he said, okay, okay, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it. So then he has one of his flunkies come down and give me a list of, you know, 10 subjects that we're going to talk about that night. And this is, you know, the GE thing is number seven. Well, we know we don't get around around to anything like seven topics uh, usually in the 10 minutes that I'm on there. So I knew they were just trying to, you know, Soft put, you, yeah, yeah play, placate me. And then they say, well, gee, we just we, we ran out of time. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We went through my first five-minute segment. And I asked Letterman some questions, which would lead us into a discussion about GE, which he was making fun of also. But mm-hmm. he was making fun of like the quality of their light bulbs and stuff like that. You know, right. not not anything serious. He stayed away from GE. And in, in the second, my second segment, I just I said, "All right, David. You know, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna talk about GE, and you're not gonna stop me." And uh, I just started shouting all these, you know, objections I had to GE, you know, like, <laughs> you know, point by point, you mm-hmm. know. And he's getting real upset and saying, well, you're, it's like you're coming into my house and you're, and you're spitting in the orchids, you know, or, you know, like you're, you know, I'm saying it's not your house, you know, it's, you know, this isn't your house. And we, we, we were going on and, you know, screaming at each other. The audience liked it a lot. I don't know if they exactly knew what was going on. <laughs> but uh, afterward, you know, everybody thought that that would be it for me, that I would never appear on Letterman's show again. And I figured I went out in a blaze of glory, so it was okay. But he did have me back, you know, several more times. And I did do this kind of thing again. It made me look like a kind of a hero, you know, the little guy fighting giant corporation, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, you know, they... And it made you feel like a hero. Yeah. So you finally got your comic book triumph. So I, you know, uh, the the people that wrote the uh, script for the American Splendor movie, you know, were pretty aware of that. And and they put in that that whole sequence of of my, you know, appearances with Letterman in the the film. Make me look like a working man's hero or something like that or, you know. 
Well, so you had your moment of superhero triumph. Yeah, I had, I had, uh, yeah, that really worked out real well for me because, you know, I mean, that was, people reacted very favorably to that. Uh, that's great. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about Michael Malice and yeah. Ego and Hubris. This is, okay. this is your latest work. It's right. not about you. No. It's a biography, not an autobiography. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about the writing process here because you're writing the story. The story's by you. He's telling it to you. Did you sit down with a tape recorder or just listen and? Well, most of the information I I I, I talked to him and uh, you know when I initially got to know him. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, he lives in New York and I live in Cleveland, so you know we can't see each other on a day-to-day -day basis. So we just talked about how he would convey information to me about the the details of his life, and. And it was mostly, he just wrote me text pieces about it. Mm -hmm. He's not a nice guy. A lot of people don't think he is. He seems like, I mean, he comes off as kind of a jerk. Yeah, some people think he is, yeah. Uh, what made you want to write about him? Because he was a real interesting character, and um, I, I just thought, uh, when, I, when I first met him, I couldn't make sense of him. I mean, he had positions, you know, like... A, in uh, on politics that just seemed to be contradictory or just didn't seem you know one didn't seem to fit in with another in other words he he just didn't fit into any category that i knew at that point he could be really cold-hearted i mean he got one guy you know he relates a a, a situation where he got a, a security guard fired where he could have easily avoided that the guy you know did give him a hard time but it wasn't you know, you don't take revenge by killing the guy or something. And, and, you know, I mean, he had really hurt the guy. When one of his friends committed suicide, he decided he would start a stand-up comedy routine, and, he, and part of it was that he, he made fun of his friend who killed himself. So you were drawn uh, to the, the self-conflicting and ambiguous nature uh, of this character. And one of the things I find really interesting is that at one point he claims to have a photographic memory. And yeah. At the other point, he's complaining about having to memorize stuff, and I, you do this a lot in the, in, in the story. It's very interesting. Tell, why did this self-conflicting and amb ambiguity appeal to you? I always try and figure people out. You know, when I meet them, you know, I, I always try and put them into a category or type them or something like that. And this guy, first of all you know, was extremely difficult to put into a category. And second of all, he held some positions that I didn't, I didn't believe in. But I, I gave him, I give the guy credit, he, he made good arguments for them, or about as good as he could. These were you political know. arguments? Yeah, political. So, because he's a young Republican, right? He are, that's well, he's a, a libertarian. That's like a little different than a Republican, because they believe in being able to smoke grass and... Uh, Legalization of drugs. Yeah. They seem to have uh, take some of these positions to the extreme. And this is the shadow of Ayn Rand hangs yeah, heavy yeah. over this work. Right, right. He, are, are you influenced by Ayn, Ayn Rand no, yourself? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess she made her initial impact in the, in the, in the early 1940s, at which time I wasn't you know, paying any attention to what she was doing. You know, I was a baby. But when they... You know, when they had a revival of of interest in her, they wrote about her like like she was some kind of joke, and people always used to snicker or something when they'd hear her name. And he's like one of the very very few people I I I think he's maybe the only person I ever knew that took Anne Rand seriously, but he would take up her positions and he would argue. And, you know, he'd do a credible job of, of, of backing up what she had said. I didn't accept the stuff, but I thought, this guy's got reasons. I was wondering how sincere is this guy. And he had done, a, he had done his homework. He had done a lot of thinking and a lot of reading. And I respected that, even if he didn't draw the same conclusions that I did. Gary Dumb did the art for this book. Yeah. And one of the things I found fascinating was that Michael Malice is always transparent. Is that 
I'm, is that purposeful? And that's just part of Gary's style. You mean physically, like he, he looks like he's he's always drawn in lines. Yeah, he's never filled in. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and other people are filled in, but never Michael Malice. Well, it could be because Michael Malice. I I have to ask Gary about it. I I know the characteristic you're talking about. It didn't occur to me to ask him why he did that. But he does do that with some other characters sometimes. It could have been because Michael Malice was, well, he drew him as having real light hair. Right. And he might have, and, and he's also, Michael Malice described himself as being real small physically. Right. So maybe he's trying to create some kind of a wraith-like character. I don't know. But I actually have to actually ask, ask Gary why he did that. I wanted to ask you, too, about The Quitter, which I loved. I thought it was beautifully done. It had a the look of that. The, the artist there is Gary Haspiel? Or Dean Haspiel. Dean Haspiel, I'm sorry. The look and the feel of that work is very noir. It, it strikes me almost as, as looking quite a bit. If somebody took all the many of the tropes of a 1940s detective movie in the look and feel of a 1940s detective movie and transpose them into the comic world, biographical comic world, you'd get the quitter. And there's a certain Beckettian as- aspect, too. It's Samuel Beckett. When I read that book, all I could think of was the, the Beckett phrase, you know, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail better. Yeah. And, and this is, is this something that, that influenced you that you've come across? Um, okay, the the noir elements of the uh, of the illustration. That's what you're mainly right. describing. Um, that was, uh, you know, Dean Haspiel's specific solution to a problem I put to him. You know, I said in the past, Dean. Dean, I should mention this. He's the guy that hooked me up with people that produ- produced American Splendor. Mm-hmm. I made a lot of money from that, mm-hmm. and I wanted to pay him back. Uh-huh. So I asked him, what can I do you know, that'll, you know, that'll pay you back? And he said, write a long narrative and let me do the illustration. Okay, that's fine, but what I, I wanted to do was this real serious narrative, and Dean and I had just done kind of humorous stuff before and mm-hmm. not... And we hadn't really worked together that much, and I thought that the work needed to have a more ser- you know, serious uh, quality to it. So we talked about, just in general, about him doing something about it. Didn't hit on any solutions, but then he did hit on this style, which I thought was really good, and he got tremendous praise for it. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And, and the story is, is really compelling. It's a story you've told parts of before, but it's, yeah. it's beautiful to find it all in one piece. And normally, you've explained, you write kind of anecdotal pieces. Yeah, when, when I was with, with American Splendor. Right. I didn't have the opportunity to write long ones like that. Mm-hmm. Now I do, and I'm availing myself of it. I, you see, there are two books that I've written that are... You Both know, Michael book, Malice and this. Yeah, our book length. I'm working on a. Uh, I'm finished actually with the script for a third one. A guy's doing the illustration for it. Is this a biographical, autobiographical? Uh, well, this is actually, this is something again that's that's sort of different. It's um, based on what I was told about the state of Macedonia, or the nation of Macedonia, by a a person who uh, went to Berkeley. Current day Macedonia. Yeah, current day Macedonia. She was a political science major, and she was always ha- being hassled by people because she was into peace studies. And they were saying, "Oh, war is inevitable. You know, you're just a wimp, and you're gonna have war no matter what. What do you? What's this peace studies baloney?" So um, she, you know, that goaded her into actually going to Macedonia and finding out why a war hadn't taken place between the Albanians, who were the minority population there, and the Macedonians. And I met her just before she was about to leave, and she told me about her project. You know, she was going to write a thesis mm-hmm. using that as the, the subject. And I said, well, could you do me a favor and take notes because I'm interested in that. And actually, see, there had been a, a precedent. There's a guy named Joe Sacco 
who actually was trained in college as a reporter, and he's a very, very bright guy and a very good reporter. He was able to develop an outstanding illustration style as well. And so, like, he's big on war. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, like he's like a left-to-center guy, but he, he always wants to do stuff about war and how the Americans bombed, you know, Dresden and stuff like that. And so when he, he did stuff about Yugoslavia, you know, namely about Bosnia. Bosnia, yeah. Yes. Uh, he, he put in a lot of violence. And the thing I wanted to do was to just have it be, you know, like with no violence. So in a, in a way it was sort of inspired by Joe Sacco's work. And in a way I tried to, um, I had a different end in mind. But anyway, that's another that's another project I'm working on, mm -hmm. and another project is that I'm working uh, on a, a book that's going to be about the history of SDS, you know, Students it's for Democratic Society, and then I'm working on another one about the Beat Generation. The SDS project and the Beat Generation project were not as, uh, originated by me, but the guy who did, you know, have the idea wanted me to work on them. So are these people so, at publishers? No, this guy, this guy would, you know, like he would, in both cases, for both, he would be like a, like a head editor or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he would like, you know, send out work for the SDS thing. What he was doing was sending me out these narratives that were written by SDS members in various parts of the country about, you know, what they were doing in 1968 and, and, uh. And and then he would turn around and send them to me, and ask me to you know break them down into a, a comic book script. Mm -hmm. So that those are a couple of other projects. I don't completely control those projects, but I was working on them. I had previously also worked on a book that this same guy did uh, about the Wobblies, who uh, you know are one of America's most radical uh, groups, and um, that. That wound up being, you know, pretty well received and uh, led to this. So all these, these are, are continue to, bo to work in nonfiction biography. Yeah, right. I find it interesting that you refer to it as comic book instead of going for the more uh, auspicious-sounding graphic novel. Well, for one thing, the term graphic novel is incorrect. I mean, it's used incorrectly. I mean, they use it about my stuff, but my stuff isn't fiction, so how could it be a, a novel of any kind? And for another th thing, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, ash I'm not ashamed of comic books origins, you know, so I, it doesn't bother me to refer to That's what they're, they're, people generally know what you're talking about when you talk about a comic book, so that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to spiff it up. Let's get back a little bit to the quitter, which I, I, I really loved. There, one of the themes in there was this idea of forces working against you, insurmountable forces. It, growing up, the quitter, which is a story of, of your childhood, essentially, yeah. uh, ends about the time you got going into the, your working on your comic books. You felt surrounded in your youth by insurmountable forces and forces working against you. Conspiracies? Tell well, us a little I bit about your feelings. I wouldn't put it in a, I wouldn't call them conspiracies, but I did, I, I did find myself con, con, confronted with my own obsessive compulsive behavior, which caused me to want to succeed so badly that any time I was doing something that was worth something to me and, 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 I, and I had a little setback, I would quit the thing because I couldn't stand the pain of contemplating not succeeding, you know. So that, that's... And you, you found your first actual success in the reviewing. Well, I mean, I... Or was I, it... I just, Described, you know, it's like when I, I was in the street fighting and stuff like that. That was a kind of a success, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, before that, you know, I got some success from ath athletic uh, achievements, and also I, I was a good student, but I didn't, you know, I mean, 
that wasn't considered to be anything to be proud of by my peers, so I didn't make a big deal out of that. One of the things that, that persists to this day in your comics is the this worrying about the future. Yeah. You know, and you're at the pinnacle of success, the, the height, the, I mean, American splendor be damned, you're, you're in American dream territory at this point. Um, when when they when they made a ma major motion picture about you, that's that, what a lot of people think. That not only not alone. <laughs> that not only are the, that you are portrayed in, but you get to star in as well. This is something. So why do I bitch so much? Yes. What's with the whinging? Well, it's because I I just feel I still feel like you know beleaguered and surrounded and like, you know, if my book stops selling, I'm in real trouble. I, I live on a, a a pension from the government plus you know social some some money I get from social security and that's not enough to support my wife and I and if uh, and I haven't been used to you know commercial success in comics but now I've got you know I've got to have it to be able to make the extra money I need to live the way I want to live and. Uh, I'm real scared that I won't be able to pull it off. That, I mean, I think I can keep on writing good things, but whether the public, you know, accepts them or not, or pays for them, that's out of my hands, and that scares me. So, well, that's what I complain about. I complain about the fact that I'm afraid that I'm gonna, my luck's going to change. Granted, yes, I'm in a pretty good position now, especially compared to where I was. We've been speaking with Harvey Picar, who's in a great position. He's just published two wonderful books, Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story, and The Quitter. Thanks for speaking with us, Harvey. My pleasure. It was great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.